Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It's another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast with David Campbell, your host, and Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Terry, how are you doing this week? I am doing well. Good. I wanted to hit you with the big story. We're going to start this segment. We're going to call it the big story of the week. And this week, mm-hmm. the big story of the week is that the Oxford University Press, which publishes the Oxford English Dictionary, has named the 2022 Word of the Year. It's a lot of awards being given out this time of year. And here, the word of the year this year is goblin mode. Have you heard of goblin mm. mode, Terry? I have not. It ref- it's a slang get- term. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's a slang term. It refers to a type of behavior which is un- unapologetically self-indulgent, indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms, traits that may have become familiar to many during the COVID lockdown. What do you think of goblin mode? Well, I'm going to give it to people. The next person I hear, I want this person to be the best version of himself. I am so <laughs> sick of that phrase, the best version. That is lazy, slovenly, whatever, because um, I'm not sure what the best version of myself is supposed to even be, especially since sometimes we do indulge in goblin mode. <laughs> That's right. Well, goblin mode, maybe uh, the best version of yourself could be the phrase of the year for 2023. We're yeah, going to get out of goblin mode, and we're going to become the best version of ourselves. So, And they could be two phrases we could both live without. That's right. All right, Terry, speaking of uh, guys who are trying to be the best version of themselves, why don't we start with the Browns, who went down to Houston on Sunday and got a win, moved to 5-7 and seven now in Deshaun Watson's first game. He went 12 of 22 passing for 131 yards, 6.0 yards per attempt, the one interception in the end zone, a 53.4 passer rating. Uh, you wrote about this after the game, but given a few days now, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Um, where are you at with Deshaun Watson? Probably even a little more discouraged than when I wrote the column because I went back and looked at some of that, David, and he's such a weird quarterback. And stay with me on this because even when he's good, he's throwing off balance off the wrong foot. You know, the left shoulder's going one way, the ball's going the other way. So it's hard to judge. So when you're looking at him throwing so poorly, you think, this guy's fundamentals are just really bad. And that's what I thought watching that. And so, you know, does that straighten out soon? I hope so. 
but it, it was it was discouraging. And yes, it was his first game back, and I'm sure there were some nerves in it, but I also thought he would kind of get better as he went along, and that didn't happen either. And keep in mind, he's playing against a very poor defense in a dome. The atmosphere there was not bad at all. I bet it's going to be worse than him in Cincinnati. Uh, oh, it was half empty on Sunday from yeah. what I saw. And there was a lot of Browns fans, and there weren't a lot of signs or anything. It just was – it looked – the whole the whole setting in Houston reminded me of one in thirty one with the Browns. Remember how that was there, kind of the hardcore were there, but the whole thing is about trying to get a quarterback, trying to get a high pick, um, and I, it was seemed like it was set up for him really to play fairly well. Because keep in mind he doesn't he didn't have the weather too thrown in a dome, and that also was that surface is easy for him to you know do his cuts and get away from things, and so. We're going to find out a lot more the next couple of uh, uh, weeks. But I I wish I could come back and say I was more encouraged looking at it, but actually I was discouraged. It looked, it looked worse. I mean, some of those throws are so far off. And, you know, the ones – and, David, I often do yield to you some on football, and I'm going to on this case, but why do you think so many of those throws are so short? I have a theory, but I want to hear what you think. That's interesting, Terry. So, I mean, he spent a lot of time working with Quincy, Quincy Avery, his quarterback's coach, mm-hmm. and working on footwork. So it was a little surprising that it kind of seemed like it fell apart a little bit. But it's it's one thing to do footwork in a field with dummies yeah. and your quarterback coach. And then when you have guys trying to get to you and knock you down and tackle you and, and sack you, it's a, different, it's a different world and a different speed. But I thought his arm strength on the throws that he made downfield looked fine, but I I think he might have been bailing out a little bit early. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back and look at it. What did you see? Exactly. The old skittish in a pocket, you know, looked like to me. And I just think it's like uh, when a basketball player is falling away and he doesn't really have his balance. Sometimes guys can shoot fallaway shots. They have their balance, but they have it in their mind. They're going, they're going to shoot a fallaway jumper. Uh, but in this case, when he shoot it off balance, or in this throw off balance, it kind of jerks things short. And that's what it just reminded me of. Again, my basketball background came out a little stronger there. But I'm going, man, oh, man, you're throwing at a guy's ankles or it's bouncing four feet in front of him. Just throw it. Set yourself and throw it. So that bothered me quite a bit. So we'll see what goes on from there. Um, the other thing that happens even when they do this in practice, it doesn't quite come out that way. I think when you're having played in two years and you go in the huddle and they're giving you what amounts to two plays usually to pick from, a run and a pass, and then you have to quickly convey it to your team. Then you have to get to the line of scrimmage, and then you have to look around at what the defense is doing. Now, all this is elementary quarterback stuff, and you have to do it all in 30 seconds, but when you haven't been doing it, as you said, and they haven't been tackling you, that game was going very fast for him, and I don't think it slowed down. In fact, I think they only threw eight passes in the second half, which was a good move. That And finally, David, on that, I did look at this a couple times. The interception in the end zone, and I did ask Stefanski about it too. Basically, uh, he never saw the safety. And that wasn't that hard to pick up. Yeah, and I think the safety came off of his assignment too. The other thing I was thinking about, Terry, is you're coming back from your first game. You're playing a bad mm-hmm. team. You're playing for Kevin Stefanski, who is just so interception averse. Yeah. Um, and 
all right, I'm going into this game. We're not, we don't, I don't want to lose it for us. My first time yeah. out, if I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss low. Well, he did. So, and so <laughs> and he did. And if you look, the yeah. one that the interception was a, a rope of a throw that he put into the end zone. Oh yeah. And you could see the arm strength there and you can see how that's going to help him down the road. But I, I do, a part of me was wondering like, all right, I don't want to miss high. I don't want to miss high. I don't want to miss high. Could be. It's probably going through his head. I don't know. Um, we're, we're kind of speculating there, but I think just a lot of things are going through his head. He just looked like uh, uh, somebody that the speed of the game overwhelmed him. Um, that doesn't mean that'll be continuing to be a problem the rest of the year, but I expected more. And, and remember, I kept writing too. be patient. This stuff. In fact, a couple of people were angry. So patience is in order with him. And why are you saying that he's supposed to, you know, they give up all the stuff for him. He should be good right away. Well, that's not practical. Well, and it hasn't been a normal season. I mean, it hasn't been a normal training camp. Hasn't been a normal Nothing. first half of the season. It's all just been. Yeah, as, and as, and as if it goes been. poorly the rest of this year, the Browns bought into this. This was their decision. Yeah. All right, so Terry, we we probably should talk about the defense and the special teams. Yes. After Sunday, because absolutely, we've been talking on this podcast, and you've been writing about how you thought Joe Woods uh, might not be around after this season. Um, also, Mike Prefer's special teams just have been very ordinary, probably less than ordinary in a lot of they're, ways. They're and, bottom three in a lot of the ratings going into that game Sunday. And then Sunday, uh, a lot of turnovers that the defense forced, the punt return by Donovan Peoples-Jones. The defense and the special teams really won that game Sunday. And I, I just wanted to spend a couple minutes here talking about your impressions of what you saw and whether that changed anything for either of those coaches in terms of how you're feeling. Long term, no, but I was just glad to see them step up and do that. I thought it was important for Cade uh, York to hit the two field goals, and I think it was 42 and 43 yards. Those are your money field goals. Phil Dawson always tell me that, that the ones that really you have to make to be a good long term NFL cooker, those kicker, those between 40 and 49 yards. You know, above 50, those are the the elite kickers, but you you have to be really good in that area because you get a lot of them there. Now, it helped him also being in the dome because the footing is, is, is not something to worry about. There's no wind. Surface, when they catch the ball, put it right down, it's, it's really good. I thought Bajorquez really punted well. And He's that's been great this year. He really yeah, has. I, I yeah, I like him. And I thought this was odd all of a sudden, this, this stuff about, well, he has some trouble holding in Green Bay and here. and uh, I don't know. I mean, just I'm not going to start blaming holders. So, I, Well, I, I wanted to talk about that because it was a little kind of narrative on social media last week that Bajorquez's holding was a problem. If you look at other guys he's held for, their numbers went down. But I thought it was interesting. Jay Feely, who's done color commentary on a lot of the Browns games, pointed out last week, he says, I've been looking at all of Cade York's kicks and Cade York's plant foot was not pointed straight in the right mm. direction when he was going to make some of the kicks he's missed. And and Jay Feely was very strong on, it's not Bohorquez, it's this plant foot. And if he fixes that, and so I was really watching that on Sunday to see how that plant foot was going down. And sure enough, he was going right down the middle with that plant foot on yep. those kicks and he nailed them. So maybe he's got it fixed. Maybe he's got he it. I just think he's going to be good. You have to be patient with him. That's all. Yep. Rookie. But I don't want to hear holders. And I also thought it was odd that uh, Preford said that those blocks were primarily on uh, Cade York because maybe they are, but I you don't want to put so much stuff in this kid's head right now. 
I mean, the better thing is say, look, we got to block it up better, that kind of stuff. Because it, it isn't like he's kicking the ball into the butt of the center, for heaven's sake, when it's getting blocked. I mean, it's it's up, up out there. Could it be three inches higher? Obviously, you'd want him to be. It wouldn't be getting uh, blocked. But uh, I just thought that was strange. So, But they overall, DPJ runs one back. They found a guy in terms of that they could rely on catching the ball as a punt returner. Remember, they tried Demetri Felton as a road. It's kind of like with him, every punt was like trying to track down a butterfly in a hurricane. He just seemed to be staggering around where DPJ catches passes. He's had only one drop all year, and he catches punts. And they, and Stefanski said they would keep stressing him run downhill or run in a straight line. And you could get eight or ten quick yards doing that. So that they might have fixed the punt returns. Now, Jerome Ford, he what was going on with him, if you watch, they were kicking the ball to the sidelines when he was doing the kickoffs. And instead of sometimes just taking what's in front of him, he was sort of double back and running around the field. And he was getting tackled uh, around midfield at the 18-yard line. He, I think he didn't even realize how fast those guys get down there when they're doing that. So either he's got to let those balls go into the end zone, take them on the 25, or run them straight up. Now, I think Ford's got a real future as a special teams player, or maybe more. But that that struck me looking at that. That that was very obvious, the mistakes he was making. And he did it a couple of times. I'm surprised he just didn't tell him that. All right, Terry, so the Browns have a big divisional game. They're still in the playoff discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cincinnati, 1 o'clock kickoff on, on Sunday down in Cincinnati. Will this be a better performance by Deshaun Watson? And if so, how much of a better performance? What are you expecting to see? Well, let's start with uh, – I'm going to switch up a little bit because we didn't do the defense. So we'll do the defense with the Bengals. They've owned Cincinnati the last couple of times they played Burrow. Not his rookie year. They would beat uh, Cincinnati, but those those scores were in the 30s. But this year, this year and last year, when they played Burrow, they played well. And Joe Woods seems to have been able to scheme them up. Um, I'm curious to see if the Bengals will run the ball more because Zach Taylor likes to throw it. And the Browns have always been vulnerable to the run. Even there was a little period there in that Houston game in the first quarter where uh, they were averaging six yards a carry. <laughs> this is typical NFL coaching. Houston drives all the way down to the three-yard line of the Browns. First down and three on the three. Pass, pass, you know, just – what were they doing? That's why they have one win. <laughs> yeah. there's And they want to keep it at one win with, with play calling like that by Pep Hamilton. But it's not just him. You see that a lot with these coaches. Um, so I'm, I want – I think Watson will be better because I have it hard to believe that he's going to be that bad, he, that there's nothing in his – and this is the guy that had the highest completion percentage – of any quarterback who had thrown 1,500 or more passes in NFL history, it was nearly 70%. And we saw that. So I don't think he forgot how to throw entirely. So let's uh, let's see what happens. But what would a good game look like? Like what does that look like on Sunday, numbers-wise? or Kind of like how Jacoby was playing when he was playing well. That's where I think you, where you're not giving the ball to the other team. You're putting up 20-some points. You know, remember, they're tenth, they were 10th at scoring with Jacoby. I'm not trying to put him in the Hall of Fame or whatever, but they were 10th at scoring in the NFL. Teams are not scoring these huge numbers like they used to. So 
Nobody's averaging 30 points in the NFL this season. So you're averaging 23, 25, 26. You're going to win some games, and that's what I'm looking at. Will they do that? And to do that, you have to avoid mistakes. And also, I think Kevin's going to readjust his play calling, as he did in the second half, and see if they could really put that pressure on the Bengals with the not only running it, but throwing some short passes to Kareem. I thought Kareem Hunt ran very well in that game. I was really impressed with Hunt uh, against Houston. So uh, let's get him back among the the land of the living, carrying the ball a little more too. Yeah, and just for for Browns fans, uh, we have a three reporter team covering the Bengals now, and they've been podcasting and writing about how this is a different Bengals team than the Browns saw on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samaji P. Ryan has emerged. Some people are saying that he should be the number one running back over Joe Mixon, who's who's been out. Uh, the last couple of weeks and Jamar Chase will be back for this one. It's going to be a different Bengals team. And I think they're, they're really ready to go for this one. It's going to be a, a fascinating game. I like it because it's a big game. Even if the, I don't know if the, what the Browns odds of making the playoffs five or 8%, but yeah, you know, go down to Cincinnati. You got a chance to break their hearts. You also have a chance to see if Watson can respond after a really bad game. Uh, and it's just, I mean, I love it. These AFC North games, and I'm not an avid football fan. I'm a football fan, and I enjoy it. But I get fired up for – I mean, they got the big three coming. They got all three of them. And there's Mike Tomlin. They're five, they've won five games too. They go, oh, man, they'd be dissing us. And, you know, we we won five games. Kenny Pickett, I got him. I got him, bro. We're Here we come. We're coming for Cleveland. And I love that. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers I – mean, Cleveland fans hate to hate to hear it. They're relentless. And Mike Tomlin never had a losing record with the Steelers, and, and he may not again this tap. year. You just back, so. remember when they had the the Duck Hodges playing? They beat the Browns that year, and they went through Mason Rudolph. They went through all those guys that year, and they still ended up at five hundred. Some good AFC games coming up. All right, Terry, we got before we take a break here, I think we need to spend a couple minutes talking about Baker Mayfield and mm-hmm. he was released by the Carolina Panthers on Monday. Today is uh, it's Tuesday afternoon and the waiver deadline is four o'clock. So we're gonna see if anybody picks him up. I believe that Yes, I got it right here. So he's to pick him up, you would need to pay one point three four nine million of his salary since there's five games left. And a lot of people are connecting him to the 49ers. You wrote right after he was released yesterday that you kind of felt a little compassion for kind of mm-hmm. the rough ride he's gotten the last year here. But uh, do you think anybody will pick him up? And, and what's what do you see as being next for Baker Mayfield? That's what's hard. What is next? Probably someone will, whether it's the, for the $1.3 million, which is like $13 for most of us, you know, in terms of NFL money. Um, and – but you know, how does he respond? What does it happen? I thought he would play much better at Carolina. I thought he was healthy and that we would see maybe not the Mayfield of 18 and 20, but just a better uh, – they would just play better. And I, it, it just didn't happen. His career is so strange, Dave. When you take his performance in 18 and 20 and you roll them together, you've got a top – 10 NFL ranked quarterback. You take his performances from 19, 21, and 22, and you have a bottom three NFL quarterback. In fact, in those last three years, 19, 
21 and 22. He's thrown 45 touchdowns compared to 40 interceptions. And it's just stunning to me to the, the, the swings with him. Um, but I, here's how I look at Baker. You know, I was not a big Baker fan, et cetera. That was not, but the man went seven, eight, and one that year he took over that mess when Hugh Jackson was fired at midseason and went five and three with Greg Williams and, and made it fun to watch. And he went 11, five, and then beat Steelers in 2020. That was fun to watch. Those are probably the two best quarterback years the Browns have had since they came back. And I thought Tim Couch had a chance to really be the best quarterback since they came back, but all the injuries and expansion football uh, circumvented that. But I don't know. I, I just He delivered some – there was some reason to cheer and all that when he was here. Yeah, and I do think – you mentioned Colt McCoy in your column, I yeah. think, Terry, but there are a lot of teams that need quarterbacks. And you look at some of the guys who have been in the NFL a long time, not just Colt McCoy, but I'm thinking of guys like Chase Daniel and Trace McSorley and guys that you never Brian thought. Brian Hoyer, too, has been Yeah, Brian Hoyer is a great example. Like I mean, 14 I don't, saying, years, I think. And, and, and Baker Mayfield is younger and has more talent, I think, than, than most of those guys, if not all of them. Somebody's going to – if they don't pick him up today, I mean, there's not much time left in the season. He'd have to learn the new offense. I'm not sure what kind of a teammate he was in Carolina. It seems like he was pretty good from what I saw on the sideline yeah. in terms of him working with the other players. And so that's kind of the big unknown. But there's a lot of teams that need quarterbacks and backup quarterbacks, and I think he's going to land somewhere. If not today, then certainly after the season, I think someone will take the a The question shot will be – yes, I think he will. But can he handle that? Because you have to be – a special person once you've been starting for quite a while and go to that backup role to do it long-term. And I mean, Jacoby Brissett is like the, the poster quarterback for the ideal backup who can get in there and start and do a decent job. And that's why he, he probably will get a contract to go to some quarterback hungry team and, and try there. And that could, that could go sideways for him because you know, he needs some talent around him and the right kind of coach. For all of the debate about Stefanski's play calling and all that stuff, no coach got more out of Jacoby Brissett than Kevin Stefanski. And That's no coach correct. obviously has got more, got more out of Baker Mayfield than Kevin Stefanski. So we will see. All right. Well, they have uh, waivers end at 4 o'clock, and if he is not picked up, he'll be a free agent. So we'll see how that develops. Let's take a break, Terry. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Cavaliers and this weird traveling crackdown by the NBA referees. Um, we'll talk about your faith in you column for the week, which is about Wayne Dawson, longtime Cleveland broadcaster. We'll talk some Guardians, and we've got a couple of good Hey Terry questions. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we're back on Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, let's get another Cavaliers here. They're fifteen and nine. They're in second place in the Central Division, two and a half games behind the Bucks 
And it was kind of a weird night Sunday night against the Knicks. The Cavs are in New York. And the referees went crazy cracking down on traveling. I guess this is a point of emphasis for the NBA this this year. There were 14 traveling and carrying violations, the most in an NBA game this season and the most since March of 2007. Um, the Knicks had eight travels and the Cavs were whistled for five. And Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavs, has been interviewing players about kind of what went down. And, and people are just very surprised that it, it's gotten to this point. Darius Garland says, never in my life, never in my basketball career, even going back to elementary school, um, he said when he was asked about whether he's ever seen that many. They're looking for it. Point of emphasis, just got to watch your feet. Uh, really interesting. There's points of emphasis every year for the NBA officials, but nothing that seems like it's affected the game the way this has. Usually it's kind of less noticeable stuff, right? What do you think of the traveling crackdown? Well, first of all, who does a point of emphasis and throw it in in December? You, you do it in training camp and going out. A few years ago, um, one of the rules was member players would kind of jump into a guy when taking a three-point shot, kick out their legs to try and draw a foul. Uh, but they started with that in training camp, and, and you don't see that very often now. The other one they did was uh, moving screens. They really cracked down on moving screens some. Uh, but those were all done from training camp on. Basketball, a lot of it is it's entertainment. You want to flow of the game. You don't need stupid traveling calls just to stop it. And I don't see where a lot of those calls were the – it was just that blatant, like a guy put the ball under his arm was running down the field like Nick Chubb. It wasn't like <laughs> that. So – I remember in the old days talking to a few officials, Earl, Earl Strom was one, and I think Dick Pavetta and a couple others, and they said that uh, what they would call with traveling would be that they felt the guy got a completely distinct, a real distinct advantage by not you know, following the rules with the dribbling and that. Because they said you want to keep the game moving. It's just like you could call a foul in every possession, but you're not. Because you want to, does it does it really impact where the action is flowing in that? So I hope they set down those officials. I think Monty McCutcheon's running the show. If I were the commissioner, I really would have had him in the office on Monday, saying, "What are we doing?" Yeah, it doesn't. Of course, we want to call traveling, but what what are we doing? Yeah, and you see this sometimes too, Terry. There, you watch an NBA game, there's two or three times during the game you're like, oh my gosh, that is a travel. How can they let that go? Yeah. But these are not those. And I'm wondering if this is one of those things. A lot of, And this happens in the NFL too, where one year, anytime you put a guy, a hand on a guy, a receiver, it was pass interference. Mm -hmm. They were throwing flags, pass interference, pass interference. And they finally, once they get the point of emphasis emphasized, sometimes they pull back a little bit from it. And I'm wondering if that might happen where it's like, all right, we made our point. But why are you doing it in December? That's my ad. This is no, you no, you're right. October 15th or whatever. Not, It was just – it came out of nowhere. Um, everything you said is correct, David, I may add. You, in, in, uh, also a number of years ago, um, early in the season, they called a ton of fouls away from the basket when the guy was dribbling 30 feet away because where you would – put almost your, your forearm in his back and push him. They wanted to make sure that the player had room to move with the ball. So they called a lot of uh, very, very marginal fouls just to get those real strong hands off of the guy so he could drive to the rim, um, which I thought was a good role, by the way. So 
But all those things were in the beginning of the year. And see, it also was impeding the game. When you are literally have your hand on the guy's hip and kind of move slightly moving him off his direction when he's dribbling the ball, that impedes the action. That hurts the flow of the game. These, as you said, a lot of them are just stupid traveling calls. And I'm very serious. I would have had my assistants do some cutouts of those tapes. And I would have had, if I were Adam Silver, the um, uh, Monty McCutcheon in my office the next day with about six of those and go, tell me why we're calling these. And tell me, do you want to watch a game with 14 travels? Because we are in, we want good play and we're in the entertainment business and who wants to watch it? Nobody wants to watch a guy blow a whistle and, and twirl his arm saying travel. Yeah, it's very, I mean, all the changes, you mentioned the forearm in the back, Terry, all those yeah. changes were made to help the game flow more and increase mm-hmm. scoring. And this is like the opposite of that. This is like, like you said, whistles, pauses, stoppages of play. Yeah. It, it really slows the game down. So we'll now, see what they now, do there. But. Now that said, David, they got to do something about this road record. What is it? Do you have it in front of you? The Cavs road record? No, but I can get it in a second. I think they're, yeah, yeah they're, I think it's five and eight. If I remember I think correctly, it's worse than that. Maybe it, maybe that's what it is. So, what is the issue on the road, Terry? In general, well, part of the reason they lost, they had that five-game losing streak or whatever it was. Remember, they were on the road on the West Coast. That was when they elected not to defend. That was that streak there. That was the they always you know the fat cat streak, where they just did not. They were giving up about 120 points a game. They ranked last in those five games. Defensive efficiency, field, defensive field goal percentage. Uh, they just were trying to outscore people. That's not going to fly on the road. And so hopefully they'll get back to the because I think this is one of the few road games they've had since then. Um, but I want that. Bickerstaff and I are like solely, and not that he cares what I think, but really on the same page of defense, 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 and not at just the risk of giving up all offense, but it's, it's a game changer. I mean, make it so teams don't want to play the Cavs because they're going to block and contest shots and they're going to be all over the floor. Make them be a pain in the butt to play. Yeah, and so it, they're 10-1 and one at home, Terry. I just looked it up, mm-hmm. and, five, and they are 5-8 and eight on the road. So, and I think two of the losses have been, I think we talked about this last week, have been the last game of a road trip where yeah. they might have been spent and and legs weren't there. And, and they, they had one loss on the road where the, their shooting legs just left them. So, but yeah, the defense will always be there. The defense is yeah, there. That, that's what it has. And then I think too, where he is using, you know, Lamar Stevens is back in there, uh, play uh, DeKinte, I hope I said his name correctly. Um, Diakite. Diakite, yes, because he could defend. He's got a little bit of a shot, but he's 6'10", he's long, especially with uh, Jared Allen being out. And it hurts not having Allen. Allen, there's all kinds of stats on how the Cavs are um, remarkably different, remarkably better defensively with him than without him. Uh, That said, by the way, um, Evan Mobley has shown me some stuff where he has had to play center and his all-around game has come out. Uh, It's been exciting to see that. So the Cavs are at home tonight against the Lakers at 7.30 at the Fieldhouse. And, you know, I was just thinking about the first time LeBron came back after he w- went to Miami and then when he oh. went to the Lakers and came back. So LeBron's back in town tonight. How, should, how do you feel about that, Terry? And how do you think the fans should feel, Cavs fans should feel about when LeBron is back? 
Well, some days. people are still mad about the first time he left and, and that, you know, LeBron is such a dominant personality. But in the end, who delivered the title? He did. Four straight years here, four trips to the finals. His last year here, before he left, he played all 82 games. He carried that team. That was after Kyrie wanted to leave and all that junk. He took that team on his back to the NBA Finals. Um, it was a remarkable performance. Now you look at him. I got his stats here at the age of 37. By the way, he'll be 38 the end of December. Right now he's averaging 26 points and shooting 46%, eight and a half rebounds, six and a half assists. He is turning almost like into the Tom Brady of the NBA, where how can he continue to play at such a high level at that age? But he is missing, by the way, more games. He's getting hurt now. That's what happened after that last year in Cleveland. The injuries finally caught him, and I think he's learned to take more days off. But the career is uh, remarkable. He's likely uh, uh, to, within a couple months, pass uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA's all-time winning scorer. And I first talked to him when he was 14 in Akron. It was amazing. It was after his freshman year. And uh, I remember Keith Dambrot told me, he goes, you, he goes, I'm kind of on the line. He was coaching him at Akron St. Vincent, St. Mary, about um, stories on this kid or not. He said, but he had just gone to the five-star Art Gar, uh, uh, Garfinkel camp and blown all these old grizzled basketball people away. So I called Garfinkel and talked to him about that. And he said, this is the closest thing I've seen in my camp since Kobe Bryant. And he said, I, and I don't, and he went through some other guys and how they, you know, blossom later on. He said, but you just don't see like that. So I remember talking to LeBron and he was just a kid. I mean, he just sort of scattered brain, you know, He's only 14. We're sitting in the gym. He just got done playing a pickup game. He was eating Skittles. Um, and just like, and you look at him now and saw how polished he is. And like a lot of athletes, they, they think they their opinion on every single world matter, world uh, event matters. And you could take or leave that however you feel about it. But overall, the way he's conducted himself um, and been in the public eye since he was 14 and no huge scandals, none of that is really admirable. So he delivered a title. They won big here with him. Um, like when he left the second time to go to L.A., I wished him the best, and I still do. I don't want him particularly to beat the Cavs, but I'd like to see him pass Kareem's record. Yeah, that would be something. I know that's something that he really wants, too. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Terry when he was at St. V, and there was all the drama that happened his yeah. senior year where they were traveling all over the country, and he got suspended by the OHSAA for getting a free jersey. And <laughs> there were so many people back then, I remember, who were like, he's going to fail. He's got yeah. he's surrounded by people who don't know what they're doing. And he had that no new friends thing where he wanted to keep the same group of friends and have mm-hmm. them be his business associates and, and run things for him. And, and he's done that. I mean, everything that he set out to do, he's done. I mean the school, the I Promise School down in Akron. Yeah. I mean it's it's been it's been remarkable. It's I'd be hard pressed to find an athlete who has done more on and off the court. The big than, picture in LeBron is terrific. You could always you know look around the edges and say I don't like how this this looks or that look, but the big picture is is amazing. And a lot of guys, this was a fear too when he started to get a lot of ads and that, um, and he made a movie or two that they they forget the main thing that got him there. 
they get so caught up on the off the court stuff that they don't keep their game in shape. That was never the case with LeBron. In fact, as he got older, he got more serious about what it takes to be in NBA shape. I mean, he won a title, won uh, two, won two in Miami, didn't they? Yep. Two in Miami, one in Cleveland, one in LA. That is pretty impressive. And until the, I think it was last, uh, well, until he went to L.A., uh, he had never lost in the first round of the playoffs. Some record. So, all right, well, that's tonight at the Fieldhouse, 730. And then the, the Cavs have two more home games coming up, Terry. On Friday, they are playing the resurgent Sacramento Kings, who I believe are 13-9. and nine. Have you seen Mike this? Mike Brown. Good and for right, him. Yeah. Have you One seen of the this nicest men in the NBA. He is. And I will say this about Mike Brown. He is a defensive-minded coach. That has always been his calling card. Um, and, and who else? Oh, I was going to mention about Sacramento. Do you, have you seen this thing they're doing after they win? Their owner has set up four purple lasers that they shoot straight up into the sky at, on nights they win. Uh, and like lighting the beam is like their new mantra. Uh, okay. and the owner says, I love it. I want, I want aliens to see it. Well, <laughs> we, we got junkyard dogs. They got aliens. Let's go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, after Friday against the Kings, the Cavs are home again on Saturday against Oklahoma city. And then Monday they are back on the road at San Antonio. So, all right, Terry, uh, lots going on with the guardians. So the winter meetings are taking place in San Diego and our colleague, Paul Hoynes is out there covering it. Uh, Hoynes, wrote a story about, Guardians talking to the Pirates about outfielder Brian Reynolds. Uh, there's, they're still in the mix for Sean Murphy, the catcher from the A's. There's also uh, Hoinsey cited Paul, uh, Ken Rosenthal of the Athletics saying they also like Christian Vasquez. What do you want them to do here among those guys? And obviously, the catcher situation is between Murphy and Vasquez, and Reynolds is kind of its own separate thing. But it would take assets to get some of this done. And that's kind of the question that's facing the guardians right now. I mean, I'm for trading some of these prospects because they have a lot of them. And if you go back and look at some of the prospects they traded in the past, for the most part, they have not come back to haunt them. And the reason I bring that up is because these are the same people making the trades, which would be Chris Anthony by turnoff. If you go back and look at the Andrew Miller trade, uh, Justice Sheffield was supposed to be, you know, a primetime kind of starting pitcher eventually. He struggled quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to – oh, Quentin Frazier, that's who it was. Boy, I almost said Corey Snyder. I go, that's not right. Quentin <laughs> Frazier, uh, who I think actually probably could have been a better player had he gone to another team besides the Yankees, got kind of caught up in that. And then he had a couple of serious concussions. Um, so that, and then there are a couple other prospects in that trade that just didn't, didn't do a whole lot. And I, there aren't too many where you look at this guy or that guy was let go, uh, by the guardians and they became, you know, all-stars. So if, if they want to trade some of these guys for Sean Murphy, who, you know, I would prefer, um, great. I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, Reynolds, Maybe. I mean, I'm looking. He's got some power. He's hit 51 homers over the last two years. His OPS in that point is um, 850. Uh, he's got um, he's making $6.5 million this year. He won't be a free agent until uh, – yeah, he's got three more years until he's free agent. He's a free agent. So um, 
right hand, you know, he would be he would be pretty good. He would be a he would be an addition to uh, to what they have, even though they have some outfielders I do like. Remember, they could always do a thing where you could put Quan in center if you have to move Straw out, or you you have a DH wide open too. So I'm curious to see how it goes. Reynolds quietly asked for a trade from the Pirates, so that opens that door some more. Yeah, and they weren't happy that that got out. No, but it's out and. He's on the market in winter meetings. Yeah, well, they may not be happy happen. about it, but I'm sure the agent put it out there because he wants to get the uh, the action flowing. And the Pirates, for the same reason, would be attractive to Cleveland. He's not that expensive. He's that far from free agency. He's got some power. That's exactly if you run a team at Pittsburgh, the kind of player you want. I, I think Bo Naylor's got a chance to be good. But I also understand why they don't want to just do Bo Naylor and maybe Austin Hedges or something. They'd like to... You know, they had a taste of winning 90 games with this group. And I, they also know, even Terry Francona said, David, that he goes, we had, he couldn't remember how many come from behind wins it was or ninth inning wins. It was like 18 or some staggering number. And he said, it's hard to play that way all the time. You just can't. It's kind of like when you win all these dramatic games at the end, it could flip on you. So, now, one reason I think they'll have a good advantage is that is that, uh, and you were, I think you were going to mention, you know, Amanda Clase won the Mariana Rivera Award as a closer. You know, assuming Clase continues to pitch as he has, not just this past year, but the year before, um, that helps you in those close late inning games because you got that guy coming in. Nobody wants to see him unless you're in a Cleveland uniform or you like the Guardians. Yeah, I know the award is named after Mariano Rivera, but that's kind of the the effect. Yeah, that's all it was for him. That was those two guys have that in common. Nobody wants to go bad against them. But that yeah, was Terry so Sof- remarkable when Sandy Alomar in the playoffs in '97 hit that home run off of Rivera. It was like, can you believe? Not that they won, but it's like I remember writing that was one of my. Can you believe this? I never thought I'd see this. And there's no knock on Sandy Alomar. Nobody hit home runs off Rivera. Just like in the same sense. Who hits home runs off Class A? They don't. Yeah, one of the reasons he was able to uh, one of the reasons he was able to appear so much was just. And Paul Hoynes wrote about this too. Is just uh, he was his outings would be twelve pitches, ten pitches, thirteen pitches. He just he didn't mess around. He had great location, and if he can keep doing that, um, they'll be able to rely on him in those. Yes, and that was one of the reasons they wanted him way back. One is, I mean, they didn't know he was going to turn into this, but he was a young, hard throwing guy, close to hundred miles an hour who did not give up a lot of walks. And uh, so they were, you know, they were anxious about that to see his career ERA is 147. 147. And let's see, he has given up seven home runs in his three years, seven home runs in 169 games. <laughs> <laughs> oh well there it is somebody wanted that that was going to be a bulletin jacob de really didn't sign with the <laughs> he came to cleveland all right terry you, you know, mentioned <laughs> i don't know about you the older i get either the dumber i become or the smarter my phone is because it keeps trying to tell me things that i don't want to hear <laughs> All right, so you mentioned Class A winning uh, the Marion Rivera Reliever of the Year Award in the American League. He also was named first-team All-MLB. 
Mm -hmm. on Monday night. And Andres Jimenez was named second team all MLB, which is a great honor for him in in his kind of breakout season. Um, I wanted to ask you, Terry, so the the all MLB team is kind of the baseball equivalent of the all pro team in football. And if we take Class A and Jimenez out of the equation, who's a player you think could be in the running for first or second team next year for the Guardians that maybe – you know, didn't make it this year. Maybe he's going to have a breakout season next year. It's a, it's a, it, it may sound like a sort of no brainer because he won a Cy Young award before, but uh, I think people are now underestimating Shane Bieber. And I, I really believe that he's going to come back with a even better season than his past year, because in 2021, he missed over three months with that sore shoulder. And, he was concerned about that for good reason. He came back in 2022, this past season. Remember, early in the year, he's barely throwing 89, 90, 91. But I believe he was also trying to strengthen his arm and see how it goes. And then he learned how to pitch throwing in the low 90s with the different breaking balls and control. Um, I just see this guy next year breaking out and having even a better season, an all-star season, and that would be my candidate. And I heard yours was Owen Miller. No, that's not. That's a good one, though, Terry Bieber's a good one. I'm going to go with Tristan McKenzie. Okay. And the reason I am, I, I think that he's got a very, and they, you know, they, they call him Dr. Sticks, but I think the way he's built and his smooth delivery, I think he's built for a lot of innings, and I think as he learns to pitch, I could see him grab, they named five starting pitchers. I could see him grabbing one of those spots next year, maybe. Mm-hmm. You never know. But uh, he's got to do it and he's got to stay healthy. But he's kind of someone I think could make that leap next year. Yeah, especially if he continues to stay away from those big pitch games. Remember, he used to have those innings where he'd throw 28 to 35 pitches and then you're just kind of shot the rest of the game. He got away from that last year. That's a good one, too. Um, I thought about him, but he might be a year or so still away from that. I just think Beaver's at the right point in his career, late 20s, with a lot behind him uh, in terms of experience. You, the Guardians, they come out they come out of that pitching factory. The I know they'd like to add some more starting pitching, but I just don't. That's the most expensive quantity to add. And so if you're going to do that, probably they, they should try to maybe fix uh, Plezak or I am concerned about Savali because he was on a disabled list three different times with three different um, type of arm injuries and wrist and that. Although Plezak really, David, he might be better in the bullpen. He's really only got two pitches. He does have pretty good control. You know, emotionally there's – punches the dirt and punches chairs and things like that. But I do think guys grow out of that stuff somewhat. Or channel it into one yeah. one big yeah. inning. So interesting idea there. All right, Terry, uh, your faith in you column this week, uh, you're, you're writing about Wayne Dawson, longtime Cleveland broadcaster, and uh, kind of telling his story. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, Wayne is in his 40th year doing the morning show on TV8. And the column will be – uh, he also published his memoir called The Greatness Within You. Um, Wayne is a fascinating guy. I've known him for a long time. Uh, went to a Shaw High, grew up in the East Cleveland, Glenville neighborhood. Uh, when he was in high school, he will tell you that he was kind of running the streets. He uh, 
uh, sold a little marijuana, drank a little wine, Boone's Farm wine. He went from being like a, a straight A student in grade school. His parents broke up. He kind of fell off the the ledge there and really barely graduated from high school, then worked washing dishes for a while. And he had a friend named Cortez Brown, an old Cleveland high school fan. So, no, he was a star basketball player at Shaw. And Cortez, he would hang out with him. Cortez says, man, I'm going to go to Tri-C and play ball. Why don't you come to Tri-C? So they both went to Metro. All of a sudden, like, um, as, as Wayne Dawson told me, he goes, I wanted to be you. I wanted to be a sports writer. So he walked into the newspaper office at Tri-C, began writing sports there, and got very excited. Then he was on doing news. Then he wrote for the Call and Post, the African-American paper in town. Cortez Brown got a basketball scholarship to Kent, and Dawson goes, I'll go with you. So he went to Kent, and there is a long story how he got it up in the broadcasting end, and he just worked his way up. And he went back to being, in fact, his nickname in, in grade school because he got good grades and the thick lenses was Goggles. He went back to being Goggles and really just pulled his life together. And not only is he, um, you know, probably the biggest name, at least morning broadcasting in Cleveland, um, he's also a pastor. Uh, this has happened about five years ago at Grace Tabernacle Church in Lyndhurst. So remarkable story and I just think uh, it's worthy of a column and it's worthy also of people to pick up his book. Cool. Yeah, you can catch that column on cleveland.com on Saturday morning, as usual, and it'll be in Sunday's Plain Dealer. So uh, really good inside story. You see people on TV a lot, Terry, and you don't kind of know kind of what they did to get there. Or, you know, you see people who are writers or whatever, and there's always it's, it's always interesting to hear the adversity that they've overcome and, and things they've had to deal with. Major dues paying there. It was 10 years before he anchored anything. And by the way, his whole career, TV8 in Cleveland, turned John Joff to go elsewhere. He's my age. He's 67. So we have a lot of contemporary things. And because um, he, he goes, yeah, I had this, 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 this dude, Cortez. He was sort of a friend from high school. He's a pretty good basketball player. And I said, was it Cortez Brown? Because I remember seeing him play, you know, that we were all right in that same time. So it's 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 a great story. And I do think after you read my column, and then if you do you follow up with the book, um, you will look at Wayne Dawson even in, uh, I think most people do admire him as it is, but uh, I think it will even enhance that. All right. Thanks for that, Terry. Thanks for sharing that. Um, all right. We got a couple of Hey Terry questions. And so I don't forget, if you want to send in a question, hit us at sports at cleveland.com and just put Hey Terry in the subject line. We'll try and get it on the podcast next week. Terry, we have our second email in two weeks from Africa, a wow. listener there. This one is from Kenny Kutzel. I hope I said your last name right, Kenny. He's a former Ohio resident. He says he used to live in Strongsville, Medina and Cleveland Heights, and he is now living in Dakar, Senegal. He's been living in Africa for five years. And he say, he says, as an, an aside, that basketball is really making inroads in Senegal. So something to That's keep an true. eye on. That's true. Yeah. Basketball in Africa, a lot of places, is really is, – because is, we've seen some people come to the NBA, but it's it's remarkable. All right. And he says, hey, Terry, my friends and I watching the Cavs are impressed about how much they are getting out of undrafted players, Stevens, Wade, Diakiti. Do you think that all three of those players are outplaying Okoro or is Okoro meriting the minutes based on play and not draft status? Thanks for the podcast. It's great to have a consistent Cleveland podcast that covers all three teams. Um, um, what do you think? Okay. 
they're all playing for the same reason a coral plays. They defend. They're with the right team and the right coach. They don't need anybody scoring on this team when you have Mitchell and you have Garland and you have Mobley and you must throw the ball to Jared Allen because he rarely misses. So you're filling in that other spot. And whether it's Lamar Stevens or Diakinte or Dwayne, or I start to say Dwayne Wade, uh, Wade, or as he mentioned, um, uh, well, basically those three, you know, Okoro, we just have to accept the fact that he's a role player and get what you can out of him. And, you know, Wade is battling some knee problems. And so I'm not sure, you know, how many minutes he's going to be able to play. But I, I don't think that uh, – I don't think J.B. Bickerstaff's worrying about whether a Coral's a first-round pick and these other guys are um, undrafted because why would he be starting Lamar Stevens over a Coro? He's just looking at uh, who fits. They're playing to win over there. There's not a lot of – sometimes I say with some teams behind the curtain, you find another curtain. You know, in other words, you can't quite – this is actually one of my old lines. You can't find what's there. Well, I don't see that with the uh, with the, with the uh, uh, Cavs at all. All right. Well, thanks for that question. I'll but remember there. this. This is the thing about undrafted free agents. I remember Harry Weltman, old Cavs GM, told me this. I was talking about Gerald Henderson, who was a really good bench player, small guard coming off for the Celtics playing well. Long career. And he said, you know, but if he were with us, he'd struggle. He doesn't have Bird, McHale, and all those guys around him creating those open shots for him. He said, you have to watch that, role players on uh, really good teams. But see, we don't have to watch that in Cleveland because this is a really good team with talent. So Lamar Stevens and Wade, whatever, uh, Coral, their deficiencies, their strengths could be accented, and you could hide the other stuff. I, we're not going to say that they could become the best version of themselves because that's a, what is it? A goblin? What? <laughs> we're in. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're really pushing that for word of the year. Goblin mode, Terry. They're, we're not in goblin mode. No, we're not in goblin mode. <laughs> All right. We got one more here. This is from longtime friend of the podcast, Lyle Henneke from Cleveland Heights. He says, hey, Terry, I'm listening to the Terry's Talking Podcast last week and you mentioned to your surprise that David Njoku made that great catch against the Buccaneers with his off hand, his left hand. As a huge baseball fan and baseball softball player throughout my life, I feel the need to point out something. A right-handed player throws the ball with his dominant right hand and a right-handed player catches the ball with his left hand. Njoku did what was natural for a right-hander and that is catch the ball with his left hand. Love your columns, stories, and podcasts. So I've been sitting in my house putting my left hand and my right hand up because I'm a righty, but I bat lefty. So I'm trying to think how I would have caught that ball. What do you think of the right hand, left hand? Sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. I got a similar email from someone else, and I said, yeah, but Omar Vizquel, he sometimes caught the ball with his right hand too. Remember all the barehanded plays he would make? Actually, the guy who brought that up, I believe, was Amari Cooper is the one who mentioned the offhand thing because I had not thought about it. It was not something that I came up with, but I believe it was Cooper or or Jacoby, one or the other. A couple of my favorite, you know, I still do like the Tough Smart Accountables. And, you know, those are a couple of my stuff, Tough Smart Accountable guys. And so when they say things like that, I go, hmm, I didn't think about that. But he is correct. But the difference is they don't wear big gloves. They don't. Well, I don't know if I mean, he might be left-handed. I don't know. I've never actually seen him be 
writing or doing anything left to see if I can find a picture of him signing his contract. I will say this, he's become a much better player this year than uh, I thought. And you and Andrew Barry were both correct on that, and I was wrong. Oh, well, rare time that that happens where I'm I'm right about something, but we'll we'll take it. So take it. All right, Terry, we're done. I think you we're entering entering the holiday season. Everybody should feel free to take a day and go into goblin mode. Chill out, have some pizza, sitting around, watch football, right? And we'll. I could, uh, I could give a book recommendation. I, I can start doing that. Yeah, let's do that. I just finished reading "The Boys from Biloxi" by John Grisham. I enjoy Grisham stuff, and it's a historical novel set on the on the. Uh, coast and he moves the story and it's just a lot of fun so pick it up great recommendation all right maybe we'll make that a thing going forward and yeah. if, I, if, if any of the listeners have any books or anything else they want to recommend send it and we'll get it on the podcast so all right have a great week we'll catch you next week on terry's talking